Jim Siegler here for Brainwaves, recording from Studio 3 in Philadelphia. I know I said before that we'll be spacing out podcast episodes to the first and third Thursdays beginning this month, but I'm hoping to throw in some older shows from the archive in between some of our newer programs. This week, we're going to travel back in time to September 2016, when I got to speak with Dr. Romani Balu about his experience evaluating and treating patients with autoimmune and perineoplastic limbic encephalitis. Today, Dr. Balu serves as an assistant professor of neurocritical care at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and he's also one of the co-producers of the Neurocritical Care Society podcast with me. If you're interested, I do recommend you subscribe to that podcast to get some high-yield updates in neurocritical care. But for now, in today's show, we're going to be revisiting what had been known about perineoplastic and autoimmune limbic encephalitis back in 2016. In full disclosure, this is a rerun of the show that we produced back in 2016, and then we'll conclude with a brief update at the end of the program. I apologize in advance for the quality of the audio, but we've done what we can. From the side of anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis and other cell surface antigen-mediated syndromes, I think what's fascinating is that these are diseases that give you a window into what happens when you block specifically the function of a specific protein that's involved in you know, neural transmission in humans. There's no other setting where you have that. Autoimmune and perineoplastic encephalitis is a relatively hot topic. It's a newer topic, and kind of with the discovery of the NMDA receptor antibodies in limbic encephalitis, we've kind of discovered a plethora of other antibodies associated with limbic encephalitis and other autoimmune conditions. So today for Brainwaves, we're going to talk about the autoimmune and perineoplastic limbic encephalitides. I've got Dr. Ramani Balu here of the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. He's an instructor of neurology associated with the department and an attending in the neuro ICU. He's also done research in autoimmune encephalitis. Welcome to the show, Ram. Thank you. So one thing that I'd like to start off with is just in broad strokes, thinking about it generally, I categorize perineoplastic and autoimmune encephalitides into like three major groups. There's the perineoplastic cerebellar degeneration disorders, there's the autoimmune limbic encephalitides, and then there's kind of the other spectrum of it could be like a sensory neuropathy or myelopathy or something else. I think there are several ways of going about categorizing these syndromes. One way is to think about the particular antigen that's associated with a particular antibody that marks a syndrome. So for instance, anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis is marked by the presence of antibodies against the NMDA subtype of glutamate receptor. But I actually think that clinically, it's more useful to break down um, these different syndromes by their symptom cluster. And that's how they first really were identified. And as you said, I usually think of autoimmune and perineoplastic diseases based on a set of four or five classic syndromes. So the first one is limbic encephalitis, which is defined by memory dysfunction, psychiatric issues, and seizures, and really is, is marked by you know, involvement of temporal lobe structures that are important in those different neurologic functions. 
The next one that I think about is cerebellar degeneration, usually marked by the presence of progressive ataxia and cerebellar dysfunction. And in the same way, there are a few other ones. So opsoclonus, myoclonus, ataxia, sensory neuronopathy, brainstem and diencephalic encephalitis. And the reason why I think it's useful to think about these processes in terms of their particular syndromes is that if you think of one particular syndrome like limbic encephalitis, there are a group of antibodies that tend to go with limbic encephalitis, but there is an overlap. So you can have the same antibody be present in a limbic encephalitis or in a sensory neuronopathy. Um, And so I think it's good as a clinician to think about the syndrome because that constrains what your search is going to be for particular things. And the other reason why I think it's helpful is that each of these syndromes can also mimic other conditions that are not perineoplastic and autoimmune. So when you're working a patient up, it's good to you know start from the, the clinical symptoms because that also informs your differential diagnosis. How do you go about the workup for a patient? You don't typically start with sending CSF or serum uh, autoimmune and perineoplastic antibodies. What, what kind of testing do you do initially? That's right. I think one of the important things is where you encounter this patient. So sometimes you will encounter patients like this in the outpatient clinic. And other times you might encounter the patient being admitted to the hospital. And sometimes you might encounter a patient that gets admitted to the intensive care unit because they're really sick. And I think the way that we work up these patients kind of depends on the acuity of their illness. For me, being an ICU doctor, um, if I see a patient that comes in with, say, status epilepticus, and they've never had a history of seizures before, and they have some kind of prodrome of a subacute you know, mental status change, memory loss, and other things, autoimmune and perineoplastic diseases are going to be in my mind from the beginning, but they may not be the very first thing that I, um, that I look for. And usually in that setting, the first things that I will try and rule out before going down the route of autoimmune and perineoplastic diseases is to look for some kind of infection. The, the ones that I would be most concerned about that are life-threatening are a bacterial infection like bacterial meningoencephalitis or herpes simplex virus encephalitis. And so the usual kind of approach for someone in the intensive care unit that comes in is manage the acute symptoms, so try and treat the seizures, look for the presence of some kind of infection, and start empiric therapy for those And then um, also get some imaging to look to see if there is a particular pattern of imaging that's associated with either an infectious encephalitis or an autoimmune encephalitis. Um, And sometimes the imaging can be somewhat nonspecific. To make matters more challenging, the imaging features associated with autoimmune perineoplastic limbic encephalitis are neither sensitive nor specific. T2 prolongation of the mesial temporal lobes can occur in 70% of patients with anti-LGI-1 encephalitis or anti-NMDA encephalitis. The same changes also commonly occur in patients with HSV-1 encephalitis and can mimic tertiary syphilis, CNS angitis, Japanese encephalitis, or primary CNS neoplasms, including CNS lymphomas and gliomas. FTG PET scanning has been proposed as the most sensitive imaging modality for detecting autoimmune limbic encephalitis, on the order of 90% sensitive, but this is frequently used in research and not routine clinical practice. 
In addition to imaging, you know, you did mention like workup and treat for seizures. Um, how can EEG aid or not aid in the diagnosis of a limbic encephalitis? So EEG can be very helpful along with the, the clinical symptoms that the patient has when they have seizures. Specifically, in the case of anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, there is a particular EEG finding called extreme delta brush. That Extreme delta brush, which was originally described by investigators at Penn, was named after its semblance to an EEG pattern observed in neonates called delta brush, or beta-delta complexes. Electrographically, extreme delta brush appears as high-frequency beta activity that overrides rhythmic delta waveforms. This finding is observed in about one-third of patients with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, which makes it poorly sensitive. But because it is not found in other neurologic disorders of adulthood, it is highly specific. So that can be very helpful. The other EEG finding that can be very helpful in parsing these things out is in syndromes that are associated with um, voltage-gated potassium channels, such as anti-LGI-1 antibody encephalitis or anti-CASPER-2 encephalitis. These patients often have a very distinct seizure phenotype. They have very rapid, frequent seizures that consist of twitching of the face and one arm that then goes into a dystonic posture called a facio-brachiodystonic seizure that is essentially pathognomonic for the disease. What do we think about as far as the pathogenesis of the antibody-mediated encephalitides? Do we feel like every antibody that we test is actually pathologic in these cases, or are they just associated? I think after a lot of study we've identified that there are basically two large groups of what we would call either autoimmune or perineoplastic diseases. The first group, which was the first um, group to actually be found, consists of diseases where there is an antigen that actually exists intracellularly. And the antibody that's found in those diseases is thought not to be pathogenic, but more just a marker of disease. The syndromes that exist with intracellular antigens are what we would consider the classic perineoplastic diseases. So they are very often associated with a cancer. As a rule, the pathogenic process in these diseases involves cytotoxic T cells that actually induce neuronal death, and they have not a very good prognosis. The other class of syndromes that has been more recently found consists of diseases where the antigen is actually um, a protein that's expressed on the cell surface, mostly of neurons. So the archetype of this would be anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, but there are quite a few other ones that have been found uh, more recently, including the LGI-1 syndrome, CASPER-2, anti-GABA B receptor encephalitis, and then another encephalitis syndrome that um, is associated with antibodies against the metabotropic glutamate receptor. And in these diseases, we think that the antibody is actually pathogenic, meaning that the antibody binding to its cognate antigen somehow disrupts the function of that receptor, and that causes symptoms. How often do we see malignancies associated with these antibodies? So that's a good question. In the setting of syndromes that are associated with cell surface antigens, probably the majority of them are primary autoimmune processes. Where Again, 
The cell surface antibody syndromes include the encephalitides associated with NMDA receptor, the voltage-gated potassium channel complexes LGI1 and Casper 2 AMPA, and GABA-B. But as we have mentioned before, and Dr. Balu emphasizes this here, each syndrome is unique. So while in general the cell surface encephalitides are more commonly autoimmune in etiology, some are more commonly associated with malignancy. For example, 70% of patients with anti-AMPA receptor encephalitis have an underlying tumor. 60% of patients with anti-GABA-B encephalitis have small cell lung cancer, whereas fewer than 20% of patients with LGI-1 or Casper encephalitis have an underlying tumor. Anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis is the best studied, and we have learned that patients younger than 14 have an underlying ovarian teratoma only 15% of the time, while over half of adult women with NMDA encephalitis have this teratoma. In contrast, 5% of men with NMDA encephalitis have an underlying testicular germ cell tumor or other neoplasm. That's in contrast to the, the diseases where there's an intracellular antigen, where as a rule, usually there is an underlying tumor and the, the pathogenesis of the disease is thought to be some kind of anti-tumor immune response that then gets misdirected to the central nervous system. For the intracellular antigen syndromes, I think the search for a tumor should be incessant until you find it. We have had patients you know, where their diagnosis of cancer comes from the identification of the perineoplastic process. So for instance, As an example, any patient with anti-HU antibodies are thought to have small cell lung cancer until proven otherwise. Similarly, patients with anti-TR antibody associated with perineoplastic cerebellar degeneration should be evaluated for Hodgkin's lymphoma because this antibody is highly specific to this type of cancer. When an underlying cancer is suspected, experts recommend periodic screening for the associated cancer for a minimum of five years after the antibody is identified. In contrast to that, the syndromes where there is an extracellular antigen, it kind of depends on what syndrome you're talking about. So anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, because it's um, associated with ovarian teratomas and germ cell tumors, it is very reasonable to look for that. Historically, there were case reports of prophylactic oophorectomies, which I think is overkill. My usual approach is to look for the tumor that is most associated with that syndrome, but if it's not found, to consider either yearly or bi-yearly surveillance imaging when someone recovers, but not go any further than that. There are some other cell surface antigen-mediated syndromes like anti-AMPA receptor encephalitis and anti-GABA-B receptor encephalitis that are very associated with uh, cancer, specifically small cell lung cancer. And if you find a tumor associated with the antibody, removal or treatment of that cancer often ameliorates the syndrome that you see neurologically yeah, you know, the ultimate treatment is treatment of the underlying cancer. And the early case reports of anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis suggested that if you find an ovarian teratoma, removal of that can also be curative. Although patients can, can have symptoms for weeks to months to even more than a year, and the relative contributions of immunosuppressive therapy versus tumor resection are a little unclear. And in patients without a cancer, using NMDA 
encephalitis as an example, how do you decide how aggressive you want to treat these patients and what do you typically start with? The initial treatment and the aggressiveness of therapy is usually dictated by how severe their symptoms are. Patients can present with just psychiatric symptoms. And in that setting, I think it's very reasonable to start with first-line therapy, either high-dose steroids or plasma exchange. But in many patients with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, um, they can actually be very sick and present in status epilepticus and also develop acute movement disorders and hypoventilation. And those patients, I often will advocate to even start in those patients with what is known in the literature as second-line therapy, starting with rituximab. For anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis not associated with an ovarian teratoma, experts recommend an initial trial of high-dose steroids, intravenous immune globulin, or plasmapheresis alone or in combination. Even with early treatment, relapse rate is as high as 20 to 25 percent, which is why many providers will initiate disease-modifying or second-line therapies like rituximab or cyclophosphamide, depending on the patient's response to initial immunomodulatory therapies. If you improve within four to six weeks on first-line therapy, your chances of a good recovery is very high. But if you don't improve within four to six weeks, the chances that you'll make a good recovery is low. But if you take those patients that are non-responders to first-line therapy and give them more aggressive immunosuppression, they end up doing on the whole pretty well, even though it can take months to sometimes over a year for them to recover. They're in that landmark study of 577 NMDA encephalitis patients by Titelauer and colleagues, nearly half of patients failed to improve with first-line therapies within four weeks. Of these 221 non-responders, half received second-line immunotherapies, and these patients were three times more likely to become functionally independent at two years than first-line non-responders who did not receive second-line therapies. That's a lot to digest. To break it down, half of patients with NMDA encephalitis will not improve with IV steroids, IVIG, or plasma exchange by four weeks. If these relatively sicker patients receive rituximab or cyclophosphamide, their chances of a good functional recovery is three times better than had they not received these therapies. Equally important, patients in this multinational registry continue to improve at a median of 18 months after disease onset. So it is critical to realize that functional gains can still be made years after symptoms develop. Uh, one last question before we wrap up. What are the kind of things that we have to look forward to in the future with research into NMDA and other autoimmune and perineoplastic encephalitides? For the traditional perineoplastic syndromes, the antigens that these antibodies are reactive to, turns out that most of them are proteins that affect alternative splicing. Specifically of synaptic proteins. And so Robert Darnell, who's at the Rockefeller University and who's a neuro-oncologist, found very interesting biology in terms of these particular antigens being proteins that seem to direct the alternative splicing of many, many proteins that then push the fate of a synapse towards one phenotype versus another. So I think we have a lot to look forward to. Really appreciate your time talking about perineoplastic and autoimmune encephalitis. Thank you so much, Dr. Balu. Thank you. 
Fast forward two years. Now it's 2018. While it seems like a new antibody is being discovered every month in association with some kind of an encephalitis, the fact of the matter is that maybe a third or more of these patients who probably have autoimmune encephalitis will not have an identifiable antibody, or the treating physician may not even know to test for it. It may seem obvious when you've got a previously healthy young woman who's admitted for first seizure of life and she rapidly progresses into status epilepticus for unclear reasons. This has autoimmune or infectious encephalitis written all over it. But what about when you have an older gentleman with heart problems and hypertension, and lately he's had difficulty maintaining balance? How many times do we get that consult in neurology? Or how many times don't we get that consult? It's not always so clear. I came across a paper in January by Dubay and colleagues which compared the prevalence of autoimmune encephalitis to that of infectious encephalitis in one county in Minnesota. The investigators found that autoimmune encephalitis was just as common as infectious encephalitis. And over the past 20 years, the incidence of autoimmune encephalitis has tripled, and not because more people are acquiring it, or it's contagious or anything. It's because that we're working harder to detect it. Just the other day, I overheard a case of an older gentleman who had progressive changes to his vision, double vision oscillopsia. On exam, his eyes were dancing around their orbits like a game of Pong. Opsoclonus. CSF testing for known antibodies like glutamic acid decarboxylase and RI, which you see more commonly in breast cancer, they were all negative. But at my institution, we have a dedicated center for autoimmune neurology where clinician scientists are investigating these new antibodies. What these scientists did was, and I'm going to totally oversimplify what's probably a very complex technique, they took the CSF and they poured it over mouse brain slices. Using a special stain, that research team found that human proteins to the patient's CSF were binding to cell surface receptors on the mouse brain. Some sort of protein in the patient's CSF was reacting to normal brain tissue, and presumably this was an antibody, THE antibody that was responsible for the patient's unstoppable dancing eye movements. The more we test for and the more we study these patients, the more we will learn about these conditions, and the more effective our treatments are going to become. Neuroimmunology is a rapidly evolving field, and it's just absolutely amazing to witness how our approach to managing these conditions changes and improves with such frequency. It's like watching the first use of an antiseptic during surgery or seeing patients come into the hospital completely obtunded from an acute basilar occlusion, and then walking out of the hospital a week later. It's a truly exciting time, and there's a lot more to look forward to. That wraps it up for the show this week. If you've got any incredible stories you'd like to share, or if you just want to send us some of your feedback, please do so. You can find me on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash brainwavesaudio. Next week, we'll be discussing a topic that neurologists and neurosurgeons have much more experience managing, cervical spondylosis. And trust me, it's not as painful as it sounds. I guarantee you're going to learn something that you didn't know. So, tune in for that. The Brainwaves Podcast is produced out of Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Jim Siegler, Senior Producer. Music for this week's program was courtesy of Kevin McLeod and Lee Rosevere. Sound effects by Mike Koenig. Incredible thanks to Romani Balu for the intellectual content and... Erica Mejia for the background info and voiceovers. As usual, the Brainwaves podcast and online content are intended for medical education only and should not be used for clinical decision making. I'm Jim Siegler. Talk to you again soon.